Okay, so for the past couple months, I've had um, at least three opportunities to um, either teach the kids in youth group or participate in some other fashion. And I'll just say, I'll just amen what Josh said earlier. I'm, I'm very impressed with our youth group, and I was impressed the first night, impressed a few weeks after that on the second night, and then impressed again this last, uh, this past Wednesday, and very much so for many, many reasons. And a number of these teams are really quite sharp, and they're good workers. Like yesterday, I got the gang together to help Abby Guntel move, and it's just really good to see. So this, of course, is the result of parents doing a good job with them. Appreciate that. It's also a testimony of um, Josh's ministry as our youth pastor, and um, really uh, of the example of all, uh, that all of our members are setting for them to follow. Uh, which they're watching and learning from and of course most of all this is the result of god's kindness to them and us it's his grace at work so there is hope yet for the future of our church right because <laughs> i'd given up on all the adults but um <laughs> the youth group members show great promise all right so this morning we will continue with the question whether the fourth commandment remember the sabbath day and keep it holy still applies to christians under the new covenant and if so, what does that application look like? One of the big challenges we face with the Pentateuch is, of course, trying to determine which of its many laws are still binding. We know that some are and that some are not. And there are a number of them where it isn't very clear, which leads to discussions and debates and arguments and church fights and all that stuff. And the keeping of the Sabbath is one such example. And so our final task here in this series on the Pentateuch is basically that of an exercise. We'll take some of the principles that we have learned about Old Testament laws and their relevance uh, for us today, and as a learning exercise, apply them to a couple examples. The first example is this command to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And we began that last Sunday by surveying how the church has dealt with this question through the centuries, and that background can be helpful as we try to work through the question ourselves here in part two. And the second example has to do with the law in Leviticus 19 that prohibits the ancient Hebrews from marking their bodies with tattoos. And this should, be, this should prove to be a good exercise as well, and we will undertake that one next Sunday. Now, you may remember that um, on the questions of Old Testament laws, different approaches have been taken through the centuries. We, um, we surveyed those, noted their strengths and weaknesses a while back, and in the end, I proposed a method that combines the strengths of the three main views, which I used when we worked through all those laws in Leviticus 19. Yet even this method, as helpful as it may be, can only go so far. The limitation comes from those times when the purpose of a law just isn't all that clear. And uh, we'll talk more about that problem here in a little bit. So what about the Sabbath day? Well, I would speculate that this question would be a lot easier if it had not been part of the Ten Commandments. Because if it were just one of the many hundreds of laws regarding Old Testament worship, Christians would probably not give it all that much thought. But as we know, the Ten Commandments enjoys no small degree of loyalty in our tradition, and it would at least feel heretical to claim that any of them would no longer be in effect. We got this sort of attachment in that way. And so maybe that would be the place to start, for it does contribute to, the, to this question of purpose and intention. So the Ten Commandments are spelled out in both Exodus and Deuteronomy, 
And it is worth noting that in both, they begin with a declaration, and this is very important. The people of Israel are to obey them because God had brought them out of the land of Egypt. Um, this is telling, for it shows us that God had specifically the ancient Hebrews in mind when he gave them to Moses. As noted earlier in this series, the Ten Commandments, or more accurately the Ten Words, were the terms of the covenant that God was making with his chosen people, Israel. You know, I delivered you from bondage. I will continue to protect and provide for you. I will give you your, a land for your very own. You, we are going to have a relationship, and your part is to honor me by keeping my laws. And some of the wording that we find in the commandments themselves confirm this um, as delivered from God to Moses. You know, they, as we see that, it was, they were intended for just the Israelites. For instance, the fifth commandment um, about honoring one's father and mother contains a promise of long life in the land which the Lord was about to give Israel. And likewise, the fourth commandment about the Sabbath gives their deliverance from the Egyptians as a primary reason for observing the Sabbath. Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. So the language points to a specific people. Now, we do see some of these Ten Commandments referred to in the New Testament. Not all of them, but most are. And some of them are even repeated as commands to be honored and obeyed. And so obviously, those have been reinstated as part of the new covenant. I think most of us understand that. Prohibitions dealing with murder, stealing, adultery, coveting, and so on. But we are not on solid ground if we ignore the original setting in which the Ten Commandments were given and make some claim that God intended them to be, um, as written, to be universal laws, to be obeyed by everyone, everywhere. Again, the language clearly indicates that God had a specific people in mind, and this because they served as terms of a specific covenant. Now, having looked at the context of the law, the next question then, which naturally follows, is to see if it is reinstated in the New Testament. If it is, whatever that law might be, then that pretty much settles the question. And again, many of the Old Testament laws are. Some are repeated verbatim, love your neighbor as yourself. Some are slightly reworded, dear children, keep yourselves from idols, and some are included in general categories. For instance, the prohibitions against sexual immorality that we find in the New Testament covers all those troublesome practices listed in Leviticus 20, and some are expanded on. Uh, you have heard it said, do not murder, but I say unto you. So regarding the honoring of the Sabbath day itself, well, we just don't find anything in the New Testament that mandates any kind of observance of it. It does come up from time to time in various settings and discussions, but we simply don't find anything that even suggests that it is still expected of us, much less an actual command. And take the Jerusalem Council, for instance, in Acts 15, when the apostles and elders were wrestling with the question of circumcision, which then led into a discussion of how much of the Jewish law can be imposed on Gentile converts. If there was ever a time to mandate the keeping of the Sabbath, this would have been it. But we don't find that to be the case. Nothing about it is even said. And all of this, I think, is quite significant. There is no mention of it being one of the terms or, the, or one of the conditions of the new covenant. And so we can safely assume that in regards to the letter of the law, the command to keep the Sabbath is no longer binding. The only way to make it binding is to use really bad arguments and bad hermeneutics. But what about the spirit of the law? 
Perhaps we don't obey it the same way the ancient Hebrews did, but are there some principles reflected in that law about the Sabbath that should still be honored? And this is where we talk about the law being recontextualized. Hopefully you remember that concept and that word. <clears throat> Here we need to get a handle on the purpose for the command, the reason that God gave it, whatever it is. And to help with us, help us with that, the first question we ask is, what kind of law is it? You know, so what about the Sabbath? Is it a civil law? Is that the purpose? If so, that will be insightful. Is it a ceremonial law? Is it a moral law? Is it two of the three? All three, none of the above. All right, so let's work through this. Um, <clears throat> Civil laws deal with the governing of the nation of ancient Israel, regulating how the people as fellow citizens are to get along with each other, and this for the welfare of the whole nation. And so we have a number of these, which, are also, which also spell out the punishment of the offenders. And again, such laws are obviously meant for Israel, not us. The church isn't a nation that can carry out the death penalty for someone who proves to mislead others with false prophecies or murder someone or rapes a child. But we can still look at the purpose uh, for that civil law and see if there is a deeper principle behind it that can still be honored by Christians in the New Covenant. Behind civil laws, of course, are moral obligations. That's true then, it's true today. So what about the Sabbath day? Is it a civil law? Well, it might be. It might be part of the reason for it. In the commandment itself, the Hebrews are told that this day of rest was to be observed by their servants and slaves and any outsiders that might be working for them. And the penalty for violating this was pretty severe. There was a penalty. Anyone know what it was? Death. And so it could be a civil law in the sense that it protected fellow citizens, workers, from being exploited for personal gain, similar to the way that we have laws today that regulate how employers treat their employees. The moral obligation then for the Christian would be to treat employees fairly, to make sure that they are getting the time off they need for rest and recreation, including vacations, and, and are being properly compensated for their service, and so on. And all this, of course, would be in keeping with the spirit of the Sabbath law. And indeed, this charge to treat workers fairly and not exploit them is reinstated in the New Testament in what book? The writings of? James, very good, okay. And so then that becomes the actual, I mean, really it's what James is saying that becomes the actual basis for this obligation. But it is worth noting that this deeper principle of not exploiting others is reflected in the fourth commandment. All right, the next category, ceremonial laws. <clears throat> oh, I missed that, okay. Now we're, so these deal with rituals of worship and animal sacrifices and festivals, all of which pointed to something beyond themselves, something better, something in the future, namely to Christ and or his coming kingdom. And these, of course, have been fulfilled in him in one way or another. And so like civil laws, ceremonial laws, as stated, won't apply to us. They fulfilled their purpose and they are no longer needed, no longer binding. And in regards to the Sabbath, this is made quite clear in Colossians 2, 16 and 17. Do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regards to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is in Christ. 
So what it pointed to is that what the Sabbath day pointed to is actually explained in the fourth chapter of Hebrews. There, the author uses both the rest that was to be enjoyed in the promised land, Canaan, and the rest that was to be enjoyed on the Sabbath day as previews, pictures, foreshadows of the ultimate rest that would one day be provided by the Messiah. The author refers to the, um, here he refers to the unfaithfulness of the ancient Hebrews and their hardness of hearts, and then exhorts his readers to not follow their example. And this is what he says. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For if we also have had the gospel preached, for we also have had the gospel preached to us just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them because those who heard it did not combine it with faith. Now we who have believed enter that rest. Later in verse 4, for somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words, and on the seventh day God rested from all his work. Verse 6, it still remains that some will enter that rest, and those who formerly had the gospel preached to them did not go in because of their disobedience. Down to verse 9, there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. So there's a lot here that would warrant some discussion, but what especially gets our attention is that the promise of entering that Sabbath rest still stands. It still remains. So what exactly is that rest in particular? <clears throat> well, the promised land and the Sabbath day both prefigured the true everlasting and ultimate rest or relief that God provided in our salvation in Christ and all the blessings that are a part of that salvation. Enjoying the everlasting blessings and riches and joys of God's eternal kingdom is the true Sabbath rest. It is rest because it provides a true and permanent relief from the curse and all of its effects. And this, of course, takes us back to the fall. So let's think about that for a moment. After Adam and Eve sinned, God decreed, as you know, that, go, that, that work would involve struggle and hardship, taking care of one's daily needs, like this, simply taking care of your family, would consist of painful toil and would all the days of your life, as described by the words, by the sweat of your brow, all the days of your life till the time you die. But once a week, God's people were afforded a momentary reprieve. Once a week on the Sabbath day, they got to experience rest from that part of the curse that involved painful toil. And so again, the Sabbath served as a small sample of what is in store for those who belong to God. Looking forward to that, believing that, preparing for that is part of what it means to enter that Sabbath rest even now. The Sabbath day also, when you think about it, illustrates our role in that salvation, which is what? Nothing. <laughs> there is no work on our part. We simply rest in what Christ did, rest in what he accomplished on our behalf. We are recipients of our salvation, not contributors to it. And so the, we, so the way we honor the Sabbath day in the new covenant is not by transferring all the commands about it from Saturday to Sunday, as the Puritans and others demanded, but by honoring the substance of what that actual Sabbath day prefigured. 
It is believing in the gospel, obeying it, and holding firmly to it. It is placing one's confidence, total confidence, in God's Son and all that he accomplished in his death and resurrection. It is renouncing one's self-dependence and self-reliance, thinking that you can work for or contribute to your salvation, and resting in what God has accomplished in Christ's atonement. And it is to enjoy, truly appreciate, and enjoy all that God has lavished upon us in his grace as a result of being citizens of his kingdom, the kingdom of rest. So if you are in Christ, we could say that every day is the Sabbath day, because every day is a day of rest. If you are in Christ, you are even now enjoying some measure of relief from the curse, as you wait with eager expectation for the coming kingdom of God, when that relief from the curse will be all-encompassing and permanent. And furthermore, every day is a Sabbath day, because every day is, for the Christian, holy. Every day is to be set apart for him. Every day is to be lived in humble obedience to him and, and humble dependence upon him. Every day is a day of resting in his sovereignty and lordship over our lives, right? So regarding the Sabbath as a ceremonial law and seeing how it is fulfilled in Christ and seeing how that is relevant to us really isn't difficult given that the New Testament does offer some instruction about all that. But is there more to the Sabbath than just foreshadowing our salvation? What about the Sabbath as a moral law? So let's now turn our attention to that question. Moral laws, as we noted, are essentially commands to imitate God's righteousness. And because they are rooted in his unchanging character, they are relevant to all people at all times everywhere. But sometimes it isn't clear whether a certain moral law whether a certain law belongs to the moral category or not. So we've talked about this before. What do we do with, that, with the prohibition of wearing a garment made of two different kinds of cloth? What kind of a law is that? What's the purpose for it? And what about the one regarding not trimming your sideburns or beards? Or planting two different seeds in the same field? You know, we have a lot of that kind of thing. There are a number of laws like this in the Pentateuch that are hard to categorize, much less know the purpose for them. Even if it seems apparent that we aren't obligated to keep the letter of a particular law, is there, still, there is still the matter of trying to honor the spirit of it. And maybe there is a way to recontextualize it so as to honor its deeper principle. And this can be a challenge if, again, we don't know the reason for the law, whatever it is. And so we have to largely rely upon what we could call our sanctified speculations. Sanctified, because we will take what we know from the whole council of Scripture to inform our speculation, and it is speculation because anything we might come up with will not enjoy the backing of a, thus saith the Lord. We will not have the, scripture, the support directly from Scripture explicitly on that. And without that, whatever is proposed regarding a law's purpose and application to us may be helpful in forming one's own personal conscience and practice, but not something that can be imposed on others. Very important. We all understand that? Okay, we've been through these sorts of things before. And so with that in mind, let's consider some of the ways in which the keeping of the Sabbath day could be thought of as a moral law. But first, I'm losing my voice, so... <clears throat> it's just cancer. Don't worry about it. I'll be fine. In our study of Leviticus, it is pretty safe to assume 
that one of the reasons God gave this law, a reason that is often overlooked, is that it helped to establish the uh, ancient Hebrews as a people set apart for God. Their pagan neighbors had no set practice, no such odd custom. And so this setting aside one day a week helped to differentiate them from the other cultures and nations. The ancient Hebrews looked differently, they worshiped differently, they ate differently, they treated each other differently, and even observed the rhythm of the week differently. And this because the God they served was altogether different than the deities their pagan neighbors served. And the Hebrews were to be witness of Yahweh to their neighbors. So I'm not sure if this fits under the more category or not, but it seems to be probably the better place to put it. Um, whatever the case, one way we could honor the spirit of that law could be something like setting aside a day of the week, like Sunday, could be any day, but like Sunday, and doing things that non-believers don't do on that day, like going to church. And this common practice does, to a large degree, serve to set Christians apart from non-Christians. And it could also include refraining from work, amusements, and recreation. And here we might actually think of Eric Liddell, the Flying Scotsman, that Olympic champion who refused to compete in any race that was held on a Sunday. This is back in the 1920s. You know, remember the Chariots of Fire movie? So whether you agree with his decision or not, his conviction at that time did set him apart from all the other runners and from all the other Olympians. Um, his Christian conviction, willingness to suffer for it, was out there, front and center, for everyone to see. The news media, of course, was all over it, and it was big news indeed. Races that he had trained for and was seen as the favorite to win in, he wouldn't run if they were scheduled for a Sunday. And to this day, the name Eric Liddell or the movie Chariots of Fire bring to mind how the honoring of the Sabbath set aside a Christian from non-Christians. But perhaps there are other ways to honor uh, that particular aspect of the Sabbath that would be broader in scope and, and just as valuable. Instead of focusing on one particular day, differentiate, differentiate yourself from the ways of the ungodly by, well, living godly lives every day. <laughs> you know, this, of course, is what the New Testament actually calls on each of us to do. Doing what is right when everyone else is set to do what is wrong will show others that you are one of God's people. And in turn, others will be or could be drawn to the gospel that is responsible for that righteous life that you are displaying. It could very well be that anytime we are setting ourselves apart for God, anytime we are behaving in ways different than our pagan neighbors, we are honoring one of the deeper principles of the Sabbath day. Another possible purpose of the Sabbath day under this category of moral laws is alluded to in the Ten Commandments itself. We have this charge to recognize that God had blessed the seventh day and that he declared it holy. And this because it was on the seventh day that he rested from, quote, making the heavens and the earth and the seas and everything in them. Resting on the Sabbath, therefore, was a way of reminding the ancient Hebrews every seven days that Yahweh, not any other deity, is indeed the almighty creator. And the actual act of resting served to identify each person with the one above who is resting. We do what he does. And so all this served as an object lesson 
Don't forget who the creator is. Don't forget your favored relationship with him. And when you do what he does, you are, you are reaffirming that week after week after week. Now, how this deeper principle is recontextualized for the Christian could be anything from setting aside a day of the week for rest, reflecting on God as the creator, to something more broad like expressing gratitude every day to the Lord for his grand gift of creation and appreciating that gift throughout the day. And frankly, as I was kind of like thinking about this this week, I really don't remember the last time I actually thanked God. I thank him a lot for a lot of things, but I never can't think of when I've actually thanked him for creating the heavens and the earth that I live in and enjoy. Perhaps like me, you too have just taken the whole thing for granted as well, not given it much thought. We know that he's the creator, but to actually stop and ponder and appreciate him in that role. And this would be easy for us to kind of forget about and to take for granted if we don't have built-in reminders. And it seems that part of the purpose of the Sabbath day was just that. It served as a constant built-in reminder. There is a creation to be grateful for, and Yahweh is the one to be grateful to. Another likely purpose for the Sabbath, similar to this one, is that it provided a rhythm to Israel's life and her relationship to God. It was to be a different kind of day, special, truly set apart. Yes, as a day of rest, but also as a day that breaks from the usual routines. If you are busy and industrious for six days straight, from sunup to sunset, and then that just abruptly comes to an end. And for the next 24 hours, you have to discipline yourself to say no to all of the projects that are screaming at you to take care of. This is what the ancient Hebrews went through. Well, that certainly would make that day very, very, very different. And in this, it would be similar to the discipline of fasting, in that you are refraining from something that you normally do. Each time you're tempted to eat, you stop and reflect on the reason for the fast. And so with the Sabbath, each time an Israelite was tempted to jump in and work on something, he was reminded of why he shouldn't. And so perhaps the application here could be something like establishing a routine in our lives where we break from all the typical demands that consume our time and energy, that we just give ourselves to over and over and over. And in these special times that are set apart, they could serve as opportunities for spiritual disciplines that would foster one's own devotion to God. The interruptions themselves would contribute to this rhythm of the normal and the set apart, and the normal and the set apart. For instance, Sunday, as an example, could be a day to go to church and then in the afternoon have time set aside for reading scripture, praying, reflecting, and so on. And it could also include maybe on Sunday cutting back or even eliminating not just work, but also amusements and recreation. It could look like that. It could be any day of the week. But this spiritual rhythm could also look like a regular discipline of prayer and reading scripture at a set time on each day, building that in as a routine. Not as something legalistic and burdensome, but as something to help foster one's own devotion to God. It could also include the routine of setting aside certain days each week or each month for fasting. You, you will remember from last week that the early church did this. And of course, the rhythm of meeting regularly with fellow saints, the discipline and routine of Sunday mornings and taking that seriously and being committed to it. Whatever the case, having some sort of discipline that can establish a certain rhythm to one's spiritual life, whether it is daily, weekly, or monthly, was widely observed um, has been widely observed through the history of the church, but has, for various reasons, largely been lost in recent times. 
So there's nothing in the New Testament that mandates this, but it does seem to have value and seems to be one of the purposes of the Sabbath day. Finally, <clears throat> we could also speculate that one of the reasons God ordered a day of fast is because a day of rest is because a day of rest would have been beneficial to the ancient Hebrews themselves, physically, mentally, emotionally. Because, as you know, one can go crazy if he never gets a day off from the daily grind. And indeed, a lot has been said about this in recent times, given the workaholic problem that has ensnared so many of us. In fact, ironically, just yesterday I received um, a Christian magazine, and one of the articles, which I haven't looked at yet, is titled, The Sabbath as a Counter-Formational Practice in a Culture of Busyness. Okay, so I know where they're headed with this. So I'm not always able to do this, but I personally try to get one day um, each week, whatever that might be, where I'm determined to not touch anything, any of the projects for the church that are just always screaming out for my attention. And if I don't get a break, if I get absorbed into things day after day, you know, two or three weeks in a row, which sometimes happen, I just end up with mental problems, worse than what I normally have. And it gets really weird. So anyone else relate to this? You know, we all need a day off each week. And since I do most of my work from home, I seldom succeed in this goal of leaving things alone, except in the summer, because then I have my escape vehicle called the bicycle. I leave at sunrise, I return at sunset, I come home exhausted, I go to bed, and it takes care of it. So, but I can't do that in the winter, and that explains why I'm more irritable in the winter than I am in the summer. Some of you are saying he's irritable all the time. All right, so, so I need a blank slide there. For, just imagine a blank slide. So to sum up what we've looked at so far, it would seem that there are a variety of ways to honor what appears to be a variety of purposes or possible purposes for the Sabbath. Even if the letter of the law is no longer binding, and a good argument can be made that it isn't, there are a number of possible ways to honor the spirit of that law, or better yet, a better way to put it, a number of ways to benefit from the spirit of the law. But because the New Testament doesn't comment on how Christians are observed the keeping of the Sabbath day, and because the Bible doesn't give us much information on the various purposes for that command, any conclusion that you or I or anyone comes to has to be held with a light grip and treated as a personal conviction. And we have to do this with anything where our understanding of something doesn't enjoy the backing of a thus saith the Lord from Scripture. And this means that we are to respect the convictions and practices about the Sabbath um, that others have that we would disagree with. And um, it means that we are not to force our views on them, and it means that we can't let others force their convictions and practices on us. Uh, the way a person is compelled to honor the spirit of the law of the Sabbath is a disputable matter, and therefore um, everyone is to be charitable with others in this, as Romans 14 exhorts. And here we might actually think that, you know, as we think of Eric Liddell, uh, we might think that he went through all that grief unnecessarily. We might even point out his misunderstanding and misapplication of the fourth commandment. But yet at the same time, we should respect and even appreciate and actually admire his conviction on the matter. Romans 14, 5 and 13. One man considers one day more sacred than another. Another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Stop passing judgment on one another. 
So the only way that you can force a certain position about keeping the Sabbath in the New Covenant as the right one that everyone must embrace, the only way you can get there, again, is to use bad arguments and bad hermeneutics. And here, again, Colossians 2. Do not let anyone judge you, and nor should you judge anyone, by what you eat or drink or with regards to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is in Christ. So there may be, in our interactions with other Christians, uh, times to point out where their arguments are unsound. Um, you know, you know I like claiming that Sunday is the new Sabbath. You know, where do you get that from? Or that all the requirements of the fourth commandment are now binding on Sundays. You know, if you hear that, so you think that anyone that Moses yard on Sunday should be stoned to death? You know, that kind of thing. One more point before we close. On six different occasions, Jesus came into direct conflict with the Jewish leaders in regards to the Sabbath. And these conflicts involved, of course, healing those who were suffering physical ailments to uh, allowing his disciples when hungry to pick grain. When looking at these accounts in the Gospels, you certainly get the sense that Jesus regarded the Sabbath as a gift from God, a provision for man's need and welfare, rather than a burdensome requirement. Thus his words, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And this takes us back to the original purpose for the Sabbath. It was indeed God's merciful provision for his people. It is not an end in itself. So with that in mind, how do we reconcile this with the law that those who break the Sabbath are subject to the death penalty? Well, the death penalty speaks to the importance of the command. It is not to be taken lightly. It's very serious to God. And Jesus is not minimizing the importance or seriousness of it at all. He is not taking a relaxed view of it. He is simply pointing out what its primary purpose is and how it was meant to be honored. And that it is, ironically, the Jewish leaders who were the ones compromising it. Jesus goes on to say in the next line, so even the Son of Man is Lord, so even the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And that is, the righteous purpose of God as revealed in the laws of the Pentateuch can only be properly understood and fulfilled in relation to Jesus, who is its Lord. So next Sunday, we will conclude this whole series. I need another blank slide. Next Sunday, we'll conclude this series with the question on marking our bodies with tattoos. We'll apply some of these same principles to that law in Leviticus 19 that forbids that practice. Should be fun. And I just ask that you leave your rotten fruit at home. All right.